dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the bellboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Hey everybody and welcome back to a new episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zach Johnson and Meryl McNally. How are you this morning, Meryl McNally? You've got a good Irish name. <laughs> I'm excellent. <laughs> How are you? McNally is a very good Irish name. It is, but you know what? I'm, a, I'm like a fake Irish woman. Are you? I have an Irish name, but I'm a quarter Basque and a quarter Norwegian. Ah. And the Irish is like a little sliver. Yeah. <laughs> For me too. It's been a while since last we spoke. Let's. Yeah. So we should tell people that what we are here to talk about today is Dancing at Lunasa from, I believe, 1998. Yeah. However, we may not discuss that one for hours and hours and hours, although it's a perfectly fine film, but we're, we're kind of... <laughs> Thinking of this one as half and half, we're going to talk about award stuff since the Academy Awards are coming up in a couple weeks. So if you are not the type of person who wants to listen to us talk about something other than Meryl, I will put the timestamp in the show notes of where to jump to where we actually start speaking about uh, Dancing at Lunacy. But otherwise, let's ramble on about the Academy Awards and everything. And actually, even before that, what have you been watching that's not something we're going to talk about in that segment? Have you seen anything? Uh, yeah, I've been watching a lot of um, uh, television programming. I think, it, it, you know, end of January, February, like there was just like a slew of things that came out. So I, I watched... Um, I'll just give you the laundry list and then you can pick what you want to hear about. I watched The Tourist on HBO. I'm in, they're releasing it weekly and I'm watching The Gilded Age on HBO, which I actually want to talk about because yep. Meryl's daughter is in it. Yep. I uh, just finished the fourth season of The Marvelous Miss Maisel. I watched Vikings Valhalla mm. on Netflix. I watched Pieces, I think it's Pieces of Her with Tony Collette on Netflix. Listen, right. guys, I have been through, I told Zach before we started recording, I've been through like a serious odyssey the last two months with like, like I had a death in, in the family. My mother was hospitalized for COVID. I drove across the country and my car broke down. <laughs> <laughs> and I had two cats with me. It's been an adventure of two months. So I've been watching lots of TV to buffer and, and like, you know, zone out and relax. Yeah. I so would, I've absorbed a lot of good entertainment. Yes. I, I know the full story, which you don't need to share right now. But I will say that what you just described is like 30% of what you've actually. I mean, it's been like really bad. I know, right? <laughs> Guys, there is a toll guy somewhere in Grovesport, Ohio, who is a nasty piece of work. And watch out for him. <laughs> You've been through some shit these last couple months here. So, yes. But, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no. So, yeah, I've been, I've been watching a lot and uh, enjoying all of it. 
Um, I have not watched any of those. Um, Gilded Age in particular, I've been waiting to. What, let's start there. What? How did you feel about it? Or how do you, it's not over yet. It's still going, right? Yeah, I waited a couple weeks to start it. I knew it had been released. I watched Downton Abbey with the rest of the world, also a Julian Fellow show. I, I, I enjoyed the first season of Downton Abbey and then every season after that with Kate Watch because I find that Julian Fellows will often write around the dramatic action, right? He, he'll talk about things that happened, but he, he never shows you yeah. what happens. And um, it, it just drives me bonkers. <laughs> um, I am really enjoying The Gilded Age. Good. I, at least in this first season, it's much stronger than Downton Abbey turned out to be. It's pretty fast paced. It captures some great historical moments for New York. Uh, Meryl Streep's youngest daughter is in it. And I, oh, hang on, let me pull up her name. Louisa, Louisa Jacobson. Louisa Jacobson. I haven't seen her in anything else. I don't know if she's done anything else. Um, oh, she's got whatever her mama's got. Really? She, ha- she is so watchable. Huh. It took me a second to warm up to her, and then I am just absolutely in love with her i love watching her i find her fascinating i think she's great and she's great in the show cool yeah cool i've I've been excited to see it i love cynthia nixon i love um i mean don't we all love christine baranski um yeah formiga is in it i think she you know i really enjoyed her on uh American Horror Story and a couple other things that she's been into i forget who else is in it but i mean like stacked cast Almost everybody in it has spent a considerable amount of time on Broadway. I think the cast members in total shared something like 23 Tony Awards between them, the actors. Right. Um, so it's a very, it's a prestigious cast. And from, from Audra McDonald, like yep. you said, yep. Cynthia Nixon, Christine Baranski, um, yeah, it's uh, Michael Severus is in there. Um, Deborah Monk. Oh yeah. Um, Donna Murphy. Nice. They they show up being triple horn. Yeah, it's a it's a really it's and it's very. Um, there's a lot of really great female characters. I would say that they they dominate the show, and that's fun. Nice. Well, I'm I'm waiting until that first season's done. I don't think I'll even wait. We were just talking about this with uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel before we started recording. That's one where I'm waiting until the whole thing is whole show is done and then doing the whole thing. This one, I think I'll watch season by season. I just like I'm excited enough about it that I think I'm just gonna you know once the season's up, I'll just watch the first season. Binging, man, like that's such a thing now. I like I really would have been patient even like ten years ago, but I don't have that patience anymore like it, it's binge or nothing for me at this point yeah yeah i'm uh i'm the same way i prefer it all to come out at once although i will say i'm an instant gratification person so give it to me all at once but the few shows that are coming out weekly i am appreciative that i have something to watch sure. like on, on monday night i know i i can enjoy um, I watched 1883, and that was weekly, um, and that was it was always nice. Like we made it a routine that 
because it basically aired while I was in New Mexico with family. And so my dad and sister and I would like get together Sunday morning, have coffee and watch, watch our episode of 1883. So that was fun. Did, does that hold up to Yellowstone? Is it as good or better? Oh, well, it's better. Listen, Yellowstone, everybody, everybody is watching Yellowstone. And I think many people are watching 1883. And there are parts about both that are really fun. Like it's nice to see a Western. But I, um, I, I say this as friendly as possible. Taylor Sheridan, the creator uh, of both shows and writer of both shows, appears to have the emotional complexity of a rock. <laughs> and, and there's just zero character development. And there's certainly no understanding of women. The women are very poorly written, and and I found myself I found myself watching 1883 and just laughing a lot. And it's not on purpose, right? It's not a comedy. And I, <laughs> I listen. If anybody's listened to the show long enough, you know that I'm like a super fan of westerns, and they just rarely make a good one. And he's building this sort of empire of television shows and a lot of them are westerns and he's making them all for paramount and it's so exciting but it reminds me of james cameron you have all of this money and creativity and innovation at your hands and you cannot write a story worth it you're wasting the opportunity to create these amazing westerns with this great character development and you're just like flushing it down the toilet Well, maybe maybe it will do the opposite of what most TV shows do, which is, you know, like four or five years in, it seems like showrunners like move on to their next thing. But then also like everybody loves the first four or five seasons of something and doesn't like the end of a show like the last few seasons. Maybe this is the flip that once they get a new showrunner, they can actually maybe it'll get better. That's the interesting thing is that they there doesn't appear to be showrunners and there doesn't appear to be a writer's room. He's doing it all oh. with like a handful of other writers who are all white male. And, and what's fascinating to me is I don't know how you create a dozen shows right. and, and write them all and direct some and star in episodes. I don't know how you do that and maintain any kind of quality. Right. Yeah. It was fascinating to me. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I, I, oh God. I could get into details, but it's like, it's so ridiculous. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, that's good. Any of those other ones that you want to say anything about specifically, any that you're loving or hating? Uh, Vikings Valhalla was pretty entertaining. I watched the first couple seasons of the original Viking show on the History Channel, and I ended up giving up on it because it was sort of a one-note Johnny, and people were just always getting stabbed and having sex, basically what they wanted. <laughs> um, but there is, um, there's an actor, uh, his name is Leo Suter, who is in this newest one, which kind of alerted me to its presence and I decided to watch it because I follow his career and it was just, it's just like it's much listen I mean I don't necessarily care but it's much cleaner it's much smarter um I just really enjoyed it especially if you're looking for like a historical like sometimes I just like to watch sword fights I do yeah I can't help it. <laughs> it was like battle strategy and 
yeah, I enjoyed it. It's fun. Nice. I mean, it is exactly what it appears to be. Well, I haven't seen that much. I did go see one movie in the theater. I went to see Moon... I think it's called Moonfall. I actually am not positive about that. The Halle Berry, the one where the moon, like, falls out of orbit. Oh, you saw that? I was the one, yes. How was it? Um, I... I went with my nephew who loved it uh, and it, it kind of got us on this thing of he is now 15, but got us on this thing of disaster movies because it's, it's directed by Roland Emmerich, who is the same guy who did 2012 and the day after tomorrow and independence day, all of these yeah. end of the world kind of things. And um, you know, it's fun. The science doesn't add up in any way. Like it's so fun the hell is going on um it also doesn't like it knows what it is it's not like taking itself super seriously which is good i feel like the the day uh the day after tomorrow that's what that one's called right the one where everything freezes yes i call it two days from now (laughs) (laughs) but yeah where the freeze like chases them yeah like i'm pretty sure that's not how cold temperatures work that one i think takes itself too seriously but the other one's like 2012 is kind of fun. I mean, it's too long, but it's kind of fun. Uh, Independence Day, I love to this day. So fun. But, no, you know, it was fun. It's fun to see in the theater, for sure. There are a few... Um, I don't know. It was what it was. It was fun. It was... It, it's a, worth checking out. It's not going to change your life by any means, but it's fun. It's, you know, go see it in the theater. I mean, it's probably out of theaters now, but it's like, go see it on the big screen fair, which is why we did... Um, outside of that, I too have been going, I mean, I've been trying to catch up on all these movies that we're going to talk about and, and the Oscar stuff, but I too have been going to TV. Um, I rewatched Feud, the Betty Davis and Joan Crawford thing, uh, from Ooh. quite a while ago. I loved that. I, I don't think I, appreci- so yeah, I don't think I appreciated it as much the first time as I did this time. It was really good. Um, so check that out again. And I, like many have fallen prey to love is blind season two. I've never watched a moment of reality TV. I've never seen the bachelor or bachelorette. I've never seen the real housewives of anything. I've never seen, you know, any of that, but love is blind. First of all, the first season came out at the perfect time when we were just like, everybody was in lockdown right at the very beginning Season two is so watchable. Like, I I imagine it's what all reality TV is, as somebody who doesn't really know. Like, it's just so watchable. And these people are kind of insane, and it's fun to watch. And I need to watch this. I have never, I have not, I have not ever seen it. You know about this show, though, right? Of course, yes. Uh, I'm Nick Lachey, of course, yes. Um. Yeah, no, it's it's bizarre. It's if you want to waste ten hours of your life, I can, I can't more highly recommend it. It is a hundred percent worth it. It's a lot of fun, and they showed a preview for some other show that they're doing. I think called The Ultimatum that looks equally terrible and equally fun to watch. So, nice. Yeah. All right. Shall we talk Oscars? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so I have the the list of nominations here for I I think you know we'll go through the big six we'll go through picture director and then the actor actress supporting, um, and so what I'm thinking is let's let's do maybe quick hits and say like you know what you would vote for 
if you okay. could, what you think will win, and if you okay. if there are any snubs that kind of you know stand out to you. All right, so best picture. This is this is the biggest one because it's got ten, of course. So the yeah. no, the nominees for best picture are Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, which I'm guessing irked you a little bit, <laughs> Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. So I have not yet seen Drive My Car. I think I've seen... Oh, and Coda. I've not seen Coda yet. And I can't wait to see it, but I don't have Apple. Those are the two I haven't seen. I have not seen those either. And I still have not seen... Well, I haven't seen King Richard or Licorice Pizza. I will say I can't... I have sort of seen Nightmare Alley. (laughs) And by that, I mean I turned it off. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But everything else I've seen. Okay. So I've seen about half of them. Yeah. yeah, not even. Well, yeah, half, that's, half. That's, that's better than a lot of people will be, because not all of these are easy to access, you know. Right. Lic- Licorice Pizza in particular is very difficult to find. You basically have to go to the theater to see that one, or do something very illegal to see that one. I'm not, right. I'm not saying, which I did. Um, By the time I went to go see King Richard, they had pulled it off HBO Max, and so I have to actually rent it, which is fine. I just haven't gotten around to doing it. Uh, yeah. Um, I will say King Richard and Licorice Pizza, two ones that you mentioned that you had not seen. Those are two of my favorites, honestly. I mean, like really fun and yeah. really watchable. I love I've heard nothing but great things about uh, both of them. Licorice Pizza has a couple things. It has a slightly problematic thing. I mean, you know, I'm not the first one to uh, with point With the this age out. difference? With the age difference. Yeah, it's 25 and 15. Luckily, the gender thing, I mean, it would be... horrible the other way around of course and i'm not sure it's actually better this way but you know it's somewhat less i don't know it's not it's it doesn't feel predatory i'll put it that way there's also uh there's also some racism there's definitely some like asian stereotyping in the movie that that has been um you know written off as like well it was part of the time period which is probably accurate it's just i don't know it's it's also something that that feels lazy it well here's the thing like i you i think we actually talked about this last time like there are times in which you know it's of the era is a perfectly valid argument in this particular film like it had those moments not been in there it doesn't like nothing is lost in the film and so that's kind of right it's it's kind of that's the that's the thing but anyway, so looking at those, that set of 10, um, mm-hmm. any jump out to you? What would you vote for? What do you think is going to win? Power of the Dog. And for both? Yeah. You would vote for it as well? I would. I think, um, I, I wish Tick, Tick, Boom had been nominated. I think, I think it was so well-crafted and well-done. Certainly, I mean, listen, I'm probably not the best person to talk about Don't Look Up, but if we're comparing Tick, Tick, Boom and Don't Look Up as films, I'm like, I don't understand what happened. (laughs) Um, So, um, but yeah, I do think the power of the dog is going to win. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Tick, Tick, Boom, I mean, that and to a lesser degree, 
uh, the French Dispatch were probably the two that uh, maybe could have been there. I don't know if you've seen the French Dispatch. I really liked the French Dispatch, but it's it's unique in its quirkiness in the same way. I don't know that that one. I mean, they didn't they give the Hotel Grand Budapest? Didn't that win a couple years ago? That was kind of his winning. Or maybe it didn't. Did it win Best Film? I don't remember if it did or didn't. Maybe it didn't. But I feel like... It definitely was nominated. Yeah. Um, but I, I I actually think Tick, Tick, Boom was expected. I think the surprise wasn't Don't Look Up. I think it was Nightmare Alley. People were surprised that that got in over Tick, Tick, Boom. Did you see the whole thing? Of Nightmare Alley? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Does it... Does it pick up pace at all? <laughs> I mean, I just, <laughs> I don't listen. It was a be- it was a beautiful right. Like yeah. Guillermo del Toro has such a aesthetic, and it was it was that noir. It, it was it was fun to look at. I just could not. the The plot was moving in such a way that it wasn't. <laughs> And I, I couldn't say, I mean, I was 45 minutes into the movie and nothing had really happened. I was like, okay, it is I'll a, come back to this later. And then I just never did because I didn't care. Yeah, it's a bit slow and a bit long, probably. So had Kate Blanchett arrived before you turned it off? No. Okay, so she, her, she injects some energy into it, as she always okay. does. And she actually is a fairly significant part of it, you know. I mean, she's not like a throwaway character. She's significant in it. I think she's. Yeah. I think she is what makes that movie what it is. Gotcha. I may go back to it and 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 finish it up. I just I love everyone in it. Well, almost everybody. <laughs> um, I especially love Tony Collette and yep. David Strathairn, and I love Kate Blanchett. I just didn't. I just didn't get that far. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so you you think I think we're both in agreement. We both think Power of the Dog will win. What would you vote for out of these? Uh, I would definitely vote for Power of the Dog. Okay. I think my vote would have I, gone for West Side Story. To tell you the truth. Interesting. I I've, uh, I'm on the fence about West Side Story. I love the update they did on on the book. I think. Tony Kushner did a really beautiful job making the world make more sense in terms of the cultural and racial struggles. And obviously the movie looks beautiful. It's Steven Spielberg. I think what was hard for me was in, in grounding it in more reality, which I do think is a good thing. I feel like he sucked the life out of the piece a little bit. Like the humor was gone. Any amount of joy was gone. And like people who are struggling still find moments of joy, right? Like we all use laughter as a, as, as a coping mechanism, as, as a tool. A lot of the dance got sucked out entirely. Mm. Um, like you lost cool as a dance number, there were so many things I just absolutely loved about it. There, I think the biggest problem of it all, though, was Ansel Egelfort and yeah. Elgort, Elgort. And um, I loved Rachel Ziegler. That final scene had no warmth. That that end was... I don't know what that end was. 
Yeah. <laughs> it like fizzled out. <laughs> he, I, I agree with you that he is for sure the weak link in it. And I, I also think that it goes beyond like, it's not just because we know what we know about him. Like, I think he was the weak link in the movie too, you know, yeah. like he just kind of projected a smarminess and maybe again, that's because we know what we know, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I did. There was not a lot of chemistry between the two of them. I didn't, I didn't honestly, I'm not sure I really believed they were in love or was really rooting for them. I was rooting for everyone around them. Um, and so that, listen, these are like nitpicky, like super critical things. The movie's beautiful. Like visually it's stunning. I could see why it would win best picture and why Steven Spielberg could win best director for it. Um, I mean, the craftsmanship is unbelievable. Yes. Yep. <laughs> it's just really beautiful. So, but those are enough. That's, that's enough against it, I think. But listen, on the other side of that is power of the dog where, listen, that definitely ain't Montana. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know what accent Benedict Cumberbatch is using. But it's not an American Montana Montana <laughs> But he's also um, menacing, you know. Like he's he's just I don't care about the still, accent because he's so good. The performance is still phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I don't. Uh, as you know, I see. I feel I feel conflicted about Power of the Dog. I, to me, that just. I love Jane Campion. There, to me, that was like that kind of slow thing that we were talking about. I mean, Power of the Dog was incredibly slow too. Yeah, listen, that movie's so slow. Here I am complaining about Nightmare Alley, but I, I was so riveted. Mm-hmm. There, there just wasn't a moment. I think that's the difference, right? I don't yeah. mind a slow-paced movie, but I'm either wrapped up in it or I'm not. Well, and uh, yeah, and part of the qualification too is I will readily acknowledge, even though I didn't particularly love the movie, every performance in that movie is fantastic. Every yeah. performance is fantastic in that movie. So yeah, so Sam Elliott was on some radio interview and went off on Power of the Dog, and listen, I can't remember the ins and outs of it, but it ended up being homophobic, yeah. <laughs> and and just. I, I'm not a Sam Elliott apologist, and I don't have the transcripts in front of me. Um, some of the things he said, I when I read it, I remember thinking, I know what he's getting. I mean, this is a guy who is in Conagher. I mean, he's in these super traditional westerns. He's known for it. Power of the Dog is not that. And if you go into it thinking you're watching a Western, no, it's, I mean, it is in the genre sort of it's revisionist and it doesn't matter. I mean, he had a beef that it wasn't Montana. It's definitely, (laughs) um, but it's, I mean, really it's a thriller dressed up like a Western, a very quiet one, but yeah, he, he clearly, he clearly sort of didn't understand the film yeah, <laughs> and went off on it. And then it, it ended up, I remember like cringing with some of the things he said, because he just had an issue with Benedict Cumberbatch's character. And uh, it came off as very, very homophobic. Right. Right. Which like, 
you know, I don't know. At this day and age, isn't anybody telling these people like John Cleese? Is, I, I read an article today about John Cleese went on something about like, you know, slavery. Well, you know, he, he said that people in England should be do reparations from people in Ireland because they are from people in Italy or Rome or something because they were slaves from zero to 400 BC. It's like, okay, it's not the same thing. Like, you know, like, isn't anybody telling, isn't anybody telling these people anymore? Like you can't say this shit anymore. How hard is it? Do you not see what's happening in the world? You know, it's crazy. (laughs) And I, you know, I keep, I keep thinking that people are getting it, yeah. right? That, that that we're collectively getting it and we're moving forward. And then I will hear an interview or see some piece of entertainment or see an influencer on social media. And I realize, no, <laughs> most, a, a lot of people are not coming along on this progressive train yeah well and change is slow you know it is change is slow which in and of itself it depends on what you're talking about of course but fundamentally that's not a terrible thing but you know we're we're really trying to move the needle collectively and i also would argue that we have in major ways you know like there has been major success within the last decade but yeah um there's always, you know, the pendulum swings a little bit this way. It'll swing a little bit more the other way. And I don't know. It's really tough. Yeah. It's yeah. Tough. So uh, Sam Elliott, do better. Yep. Um, we're all trying. Yeah, we're all trying for sure. Let's go on to best director. So the yeah. no- nominees are Kenneth Branagh for Belfast, Ryosuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car, Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza, which I think that was a bit of a surprise. Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog and Steven Spielberg for West Side Story. So, same question. I think we'd probably both... I, I, I'll start with this one because even though Power of the Dog was not great, uh, or, uh, you know, it is great, but you know what I mean, like, not my favorite movie, um, I think it's Jane Campion's time. I would vote for Jane Campion yeah. here. And she did a great job with this film. I It's tough for me because I love Steven Spielberg so much, And I know he's problematic in his own way, sort of, you know, like he hasn't said anything super vile, but, you know, he also really hasn't made it a habit to work with women (laughs) very often. (laughs) So, you know, um, but I just, I'm telling you, I thought West Side Story was just so beautiful. Oh, I also wanted to ask, sorry, before we fully get into this category, do you think there's any chance for a CODA upset given what happened at the SAG Awards in the Best Picture camp? Do you think any chance Coda pulls out this picture? I don't know. I haven't seen it. I haven't either. I, I I need to watch it, but I would be surprised just based on what I know about the plot because Power of the Dog, and I feel like this is a Power of the Dog West Side Story competition in the best picture just because of the scope um, and subject matter of both of those of both of those films. You know, Oscars are so flashy they like big performances and big epics and, and, and sort of the Oscars don't like subtle movies (laughs) or subtle performances. And I think a movie about, you know, a family, a girl, you know, dealing with, I think what she gets into school for music 
and her family is deaf, like, this doesn't seem like something that would overtake those movies in the best picture category, regardless of the quality of the film, but I don't know. Well, and you're right. I mean, I was going to make the same point about, like, it's very different voting bodies. My other question regarding Power of the Dog, I mean, infamously, I know, like, the point of Power of the Dog is not necessarily, you know, having anything to do with, like, what, you know, Sam Elliott's problems with it were. But there was another cowboy movie that was expected to win a few years ago called Brokeback Mountain that didn't because the voting academy was not particularly progressive enough at that point. Any chance we're still not progressive enough? Like, I don't know. I think there's a possibility that West Side Story wins for that reason. Oh, I think you're right. I absolutely think you're right. I think the, the difference, though between those two movies and this is so sad but like the difference is is that um uh you know the benedict camberbatch character gets his comeuppance right and it ends up being not it's not about his sexual orientation it's (laughs) it's about his cruelty and um i think that I, that may be the only thing that that keeps it from the the fate of Brokeback Mountain, which oh my god, that movie is a beautiful movie. I rewatched it not that long ago. Everybody go watch Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> it's lovely, so good. So, so my vote is I would vote for Jane Campion. I also think she's going to win. Where are you at? I think she will too. I feel like Steven Spielberg is the Meryl Streep of directors is that he is so good in order for him to win an Oscar again for best director or best picture. His own work has to exceed itself so intensely that people notice. That's well put. I like that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, West Side Story might do it because it's a musical. It's out of his wheelhouse. Right. He, uh, I, uh, oh man, that they were, Tony Kushner did a great job with the script. Just, I don't know. He might. Maybe they'll split it. Maybe West Side Story will get, get Best Picture and Jane Campion will get Best Director. There you go. There, I think there's a world where that happens. Yeah. Yeah. They've done it before. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think probably the biggest snub here was Dennis Villanueva for uh, Dune. I think most people expected him to be in there. That was a really stunning movie. Yes, visually, yes. That's another one that, honestly, I'm not a huge fan of that film. Um, I did see it since we last um, spoke. Gotcha. I I mean, I liked it fine. It's not that I didn't like it. Um, I don't know. It's... I hate saying this because I feel like people probably just roll their eyes when they hear me say it, but that one's not for me. It's just like, it's sort of in the same way that like the Star Wars movies are not for me. Like, you know, yeah, it's just not my thing. But uh, I also... Interesting. Write... Yeah, go ahead, sir. I, lo- I loved it when I watched it. Uh, I watched it twice, really close together. Um, appreciated how much character development there was in what is essentially a sci-fi movie. Right. It didn't feel like sci-fi. And then I went to rewatch it again um, with my nephew just within the last two months. I was like, oh, <laughs> so <laughs> granted, my headspace wasn't great, but I, it was interesting to watch it a third time and be like, I don't, I really liked this. I don't ever need to see it again. <laughs> sure. 
Yeah. It's one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Best actress in a leading role. This is the one that like could go any direction. This is exciting. All right, so nominees are Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers, Nicole Kidman for Being the Ricardos, Kristen Stewart for Spencer. So this is one that like they've all won something, basically. And there are also people who are not even nominated who've won something. You know, like there are yeah. snubs in this category. Rachel Ziegler for... Um, for West Side Story, Al- Alana Haim. Yeah, Alana Haim. Alana Haim for Licorice Pizza. She's amazing. She's so good. Lady Gaga for House of Gucci. Jennifer Hudson for Respect. They, no, that's yeah. that's a solid four right there. And none of them were nominated. Like in any year, those four would be like a legit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a crazy category. Yeah. Um, I have not seen Parallel Mothers. That's the one I've not seen either. I've seen the other four. And oh, I feel. Have you seen? I saw Spencer. I saw Being the Ricardos. Did you see? I the, saw Lost Daughter or. I, no, I haven't seen The Lost Daughter either, but I don't think it's Olivia Coleman's year anyway. Um, I love her and everything she does, and I've heard the movie's amazing. It's it is on my good. list. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, I I feel like, and I I don't Penelope Cruz might swoop in. I would be, I don't know, I would be so surprised if Nicole Kidman won for being the Ricardos. I would be too, although she might be who I voted for. I mean, I really, honestly, the only two, I honestly think in this category, it comes down to the who has won already. I think Olivia Coleman, Penelope Cruz, and Nicole Kidman are basically in that, like, you already have <laughs> one. It's either Jessica Chastain or Kristen Stewart, and I think probably Jessica Chastain. But, um... And I think it's going to go to Jessica Chastain myself. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think she's really well liked. I think it's such a popularity contest. I think Kristen Stewart's performance is out there, man. Yep. I mean, it's up there. It's it's like the Jackie performance from Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure everyone's receiving it, it as well. And also, I think in the industry, she's a little more on the periphery than than Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain's performance in the eyes of Tammy Faye is excellent. Yep. <laughs> I mean, she is so good. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and she brought, uh, truly, I, I didn't know anything about Tammy Faye. I knew that she existed, right? And I, and I knew what she looked like. I didn't know much about her history. Um, going into the movie and Jessica Chastain made me love her. Yep. Right, which is a testament to, to her work as an actress. So uh, I think it's going to go to her. I do too. Um, I think uh, this is my, f- I mean, it's easily my favorite thing I've seen her in. I, I don't know why, but she, to me, has always been in that same category that a lot of really good actors and actresses are, where like, Ask me to see a Jessica Chastain movie. I don't particularly get excited, but I always like her. You know what I mean? Like everything she's in, she like never gives a bad performance. She's always good, and I don't know why. I don't like Amy Adams. Amy Adams is like that. Actually, even somebody like Sandra Bullock is like that for me. Like you know, where like I don't super get excited. Like oh, let's go see a Sandra Bullock movie. But she's always good. You know, there's a lot of people like that. This is her best performance. I don't think I don't know. It's 
this is the dumbest reason to vote or not vote for somebody. I don't know that her speech at the SAG Awards really was like, you know, sometimes that's a difference maker is if somebody makes a really great speech, you want to see how they top it at the next one. And like her speech was, she was so surprised and it was fine, but it also wasn't special to me, I don't think. Um, It would be interesting to see what Kristen Stewart would say because she's a pretty uh, awkward person. Yeah. I also want to say too that I... I rewatched Spencer. I, I watched it for a second time and have, again, a deeper appreciation for her performance. I really think this category, again, I haven't seen Parallel Mothers, but I mean, I have no doubt that Penelope Cruz is great in that. I, like, it's just such a strong category. It's incredible. It really is. You know? I think, I, I do, like, I didn't talk about it much, but I agree. I think Kristen Stewart's performance in Spencer is phenomenal yeah she, she does a really great job she's carrying a heavy load I, and honestly when they told when i found out kristen stewart was playing princess diana i went no <laughs> i think everybody did and i like within five minutes into the movie she had me 100 percent, and i didn't think about it again yeah um I had a similar response when I found out Nicole Kidman was playing Lucy. I gotta tell you, five minutes in, she had not sold me on it. <laughs> and and that's not her fault, uh, because she's a brilliant actress. Right. Um, she's not great casting. But, um, yeah, I, I do think it's a Kristen Stewart, Jessica Chastain race. Yeah. Kristen Stewart, I think, is still suffering from she is a good actress and people still affiliate her with the twilight thing which she was like really she was phoning that in and she's like the first to tell you she'll happily tell you she was kind of phoning those in like she didn't believe in those projects after a while and so it's like she's gonna perennially have to like fight that myth that she's not a good actress because of those movies it's kind of wild isn't she the first american actress to win a friend the, yeah. the equivalent of an Oscar in France. I think so. And that was for a movie yeah, that nobody for, really saw here. That was Clouds of St. Yeah, Maria. Yeah. Yeah. Clouds of St. Maria. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. On to best actor in a leading role, which should be an easy category because I think we all know how this one's going to play out. But we have Javier Bardem for being the Ricardos, Benedict Cumberbatch for The Power of the Dog, Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom. Will Smith for King Richard and Denzel Washington for the tragedy of Macbeth. So. I think it's probably going to go to Will Smith, but I am 100% rooting for Andrew Garfield because I love his performance in Tick, Tick, Boom so much. I mean, he put it all out on the table. There was nothing left energy-wise. Like, it's just, ugh. And I I loved it. Nice. (laughs) But, um... I've heard Will Smith is amazing in King Richard, and I haven't seen it yet. I need to. Uh, I'm sure it'll go down. Yeah, he's he's good. He's very good in it. And Tick, Tick, Boom is the one in this category that I haven't seen, so we're kind of at polar, you know, polar opposites because we yeah. haven't seen the other one. Um, I would never be upset about it going to Denzel. It's a very muted performance he gave in The Tragedy of Macbeth. I was a bit surprised, you know, like it was very, you know, understated which again is i mean you know denzel has done that before i always affiliate denzel with like badass he's not particularly badass in this it's a very understated performance it's still very watchable he's very good but you know it's just different 
from him, I think. I need to watch it. I, I, I started it. I got about 10 minutes in and I had to leave it. Not, it was not a nightmare alley situation. Yeah. <laughs> I got pulled away and I just have not gone back. Um, the, I think perceived snubs in this category were Leonardo DiCaprio for your movie of the year. Don't look up. And, <laughs> and Peter Dinklage for Cyrano, which I, I also watched that. I was surprised how much I liked Cyrano. Although I was also particularly, um, I thought it was really Haley Bennett. I think her name is Haley Bennett. Who's uh-huh. in that movie? Yeah. She's amazing. Holy cow. She, she I, I can't remember the last time I, cause it's a musical, which I had forgotten. And then I started, it was like, oh yeah, I forgot this was a musical. Her voice, I mean, I'm, I, I loved her voice so much. I can't remember the last time I was like so transfixed by somebody's like voice in a musical like that. She was so good. Um, Hollywood has really uh, misused and ignored her. Yeah, it's um, weird. Yeah, I mean, she, I don't know if you remember, she played the Britney Spears esque character in music and lyrics. Drew Barrymore and and Hugh Grant, and then she's in the remake of Magnificent Seven. Right, totally underutilized in that. Yeah, Girl on a Train. She was kind of underutilized too, although a a pretty good role for her. But you know, yeah. And then she did um, she did an independent film not that long ago that I I I did not see it. Is it Choke? Swallow. Swallow. Yeah. Thank you. Choke's another movie. It is. Ch- choke's, <laughs> choke's older. Yeah. yeah. Choke has got the Jillian uh, Jacobs from Community is in Choke and Angelica Houston. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, but I don't know. Peter Dinklage didn't super sell me in Cyrano. Like, he's very low energy to me in that movie. Mm, interesting. It's tough, See, though. That was, uh, that was on stage. At, I think it was at Classic Stage Company in New York, and they adapted it for film and the the classic stage production didn't go over well it's in in manhattan it's tough because cyrano first of all there's a lot of adaptations of cyrano at this point um i'm almost in the like okay we've been there done that thing um it's also it's a tough role because you know like he's somebody who like feels it it was interesting to me because you know, in, in the Steve Martin Cyrano Roxanne in the mid eighties, you know, he does the like big nose thing. Peter Dinklage, it becomes about his height, which is a more like relatable, like thing. It feels more real than the big nose Steve Martin thing. Um, and so, you know, he's this character who's like very insecure and doesn't feel confident. It's just hard to kind of like it, I, my saying that he's kind of low energy doesn't tell the whole story because really it's like kind of a, it's a sad sack character but also like there's a reason they're sad sack you know like it's it is the way it is so it's it's a tough role but I don't know just not not my favorite yeah. performance of the year um, let's talk actress in a supporting role we have Jesse Buckley for The Lost Daughter that was a surprise um, Ariana DeBose for West Side Story, Judy Dench for Belfast, Kirsten Dunst for Power of the Dog, and Anjali Ellis. Um, oh no, Anjanu Ellis. Sorry for King Richard. I, I think it's going to go to Ariana DeBose. Yep, that's my best guess. I was um, I've, I've really been rooting for Kirsten Dunst because I thought her performance in Power of the Dog was so good, um, but I, I I think she's lost momentum. I think so too. 
Yeah. Yeah, it seems like Ariana DeBose, which, you know, she was great. Uh, yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. Anita is, I think, Anita and Sally Bowles are my two favorite musical theater characters for women, like, on the planet. <laughs> and, um, oh, man, she did her justice. She was so, she's just so excellent in West Side Story. Like, just go watch it for Ariana DeBose if you don't want to watch it for anything else. But also, it's so good. Watch it for everything. Um, yeah. So, as I was thinking about snubs, listen to this list of five, because, again, I say any other year, this is your category. And these are people who didn't even get nominated. Ruth Nega for Passing, which if you have not watched Passing, watch that movie. That is a gorgeous movie. It's on Netflix. Passing is incredible. Ruth Nega is incredible in it. Catriona Belfast, I don't know if I'm saying her name right, from Belfast. (laughs) Rita Moreno from West Side Story. Frances McDormand for The Tragedy of Macbeth. And Kate Blanchett for either Nightmare Alley, which she's very good in, or Don't Look Up, which she's really fucking funny in. Which like, she absolutely should have known. Yes. Before. I'm telling yeah. you, that is a legit five right there. Yeah, yeah. That's a huge category. It's unbelievable. The women this year, it's funny because on the, I, you know, I wrote these down. I have like two on either side for the guys. In each of the, in, in the best actress and the best supporting actress, there's like five or six on each one. It's really, like, such a year for women this year. It really is amazing. amazing. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I think we're just in agreement. Ariana DeBose, congratulations. You can start celebrating now. Um, All right, last category. Supporting our actor, Syrian Hines for Belfast, Troy Kotzer for CODA, Jesse Plemons for Power of the Dog, J.K. Simmons for Being the Ricardos, and Cody Smith-McPhee for Power of the Dog. Which way you lean in here? It's tough because Troy Kotsur, neither of us have seen Coda. He he's won a couple things, and I think it might go to him, but it's hard to say since we I, haven't seen the movie. I think it will as well. Yeah. Um, I can't. Jesse Plemons, I think, is a non-starter. J.K. Simmons just won <laughs> that you know not long ago, and that movie it wasn't as loved in the same way. So I don't think he's getting it either. Yeah, Cody Smith McKee might have a, a running shot, right. but I, I think I think it may I think. I think it's going to go to Coda. Yeah, I think it. I think it is between those two. They've been kind of trading who wins. Um, snubs in this one perceived are Jared Leto for House of Gucci. Which have you seen House of Gucci? No. I mean, it's funny because Jared Leto is so over the top in that movie. That's another one that I've watched twice actually. Um, Jared Leto is so over the top. Like he's he was nominated for a Razzie for that movie. First of all. But that has also happened before that somebody's been nominated for a Razzie and an Oscar for the same movie, and some people thought he might get nominated for this. Um, ben Affleck for the Tender Bar, which he was good. I, I get that. And Jamie Dornan, yeah, and Jamie Dornan for Belfast, which again I get that too. You know, I think all three of them yeah. were good, but yeah, I'm not sure. I I thought Belfast was super sweet and charming and beautifully done. Um, I can see why Jamie Dornan and Catriona Balfa didn't get nominations because, I mean, basically they're just worried parents. Right. Yep. <laughs> and um, I'm I'm a little surprised at Judy Dench's nomination for the same reason, although that character definitely stood out. Yeah. Um, she and Terry Hines both. She's yeah. she's so good in the movie, but also she's Judy Dench. Like, let's acknowledge that that's part right. of it, you know. Yeah, yeah she's 
She's a freaking queen. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Which I'm not complaining about. I'm just saying that's part of it. Because, yeah. you know. So. Yeah, she's a legend. No doubt. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting, won't it? So, I mean, it's a year where, yeah. like, half of it feels like, you know, Will Smith and Ariana DeBose, congratulations, you already won. Uh, you know, and in the other categories, Power of the Dog, I suspect, has a, you know, really, really strong shot. I think Jane Campion has a really, really strong shot. Um, it's really kind of the best actress and best supporting actor that could go a couple different ways, in particular, best actress. Um, so, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. So. yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. Cool. All right. Shall we talk about Dancing a Lunasim? Let's do it. 1998. Uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, it's adapted mm-hmm. from a Brian Friel play that came out in, I think, 1990. Also called Dancing at Lunasim, which I shared with Meryl. Um, I had a very small role in that play in the very early 90s. It was like 93 or 94, maybe 95. Um, at in a community theater in, in my town, which is where I met the theater professor that was at the school that Meryl and I went to. So we have kind of a funny connection in that way. But I was familiar with this play and um, loved it because of my experience with it. Um, so do you want to give a synopsis? Do you feel up to a synopsis for this one? It's not the easiest sure. one to synopsis. No, it's set. It's obviously set in Ireland just before World War Two. Um, what, 37? I think 36, yeah. 30, 36, 37. And it's really about these five sisters, the Mundy sisters, who who live together in a small cottage. Are they in Donegal? Somewhere in there, yeah. And uh, it's, it's really a snapshot of a summer with these five sisters. One of them has a son out of wedlock whose father shows up every once in a while and um, shows up as part of the story to to see them, and he's about to go off and fight with Franco. It it starts with these five sisters. Their brother returns. He's a priest, and he returns after spending uh, years and years in Africa as as a missionary, and he's um, due to age or alzheimer's or or whatnot it's not quite entirely clear his mental faculties aren't all quite there when he returns and um there's just a lot of change happening in the community at the time they're opening up a a a wool factory um that's gonna you know put a lot of local women out of work yeah i mean that's about it like there's just this this summer of change Which is said to be pretty autobiographical for the for the writer Brian Friel that that was basically his mom and his sisters. Um, so, yeah, it's and Meryl plays Kate Mundy, who's kind of the serious, almost mother of the family. She's I think the oldest yeah. sister, and she's the only one who has um, very Catholic, very very Catholic, and again, kind of you know runs the place. She's the only one that has. Uh, I think steady wage. She's a school teacher. Um, the other, the other women, um, you know, kind of maintain the house, and they, like you said, they kind of knit and sell. I think it's implied that they sell their like uh, hats and scarves and mittens and stuff. And that's part of the problem, like you said, is there's this new mill that's going into town, uh, and that's going to put them for sure out of work. And so it's this question of 
Um, and then when their brother is returned to them, he, you know, his bizarre behavior and the fact that he was, he was an ordained minister, I believe, right? Didn't they say that in the film? He's a priest. He's a priest, yeah. Yeah. And so because of his, but, he's kind of gone a different way in Africa. He's a little bit more, uh, uh, he's a little bit less Catholic or something. I don't, I, I guess I'm not really lot, sure. Yeah, he's definitely picked up some pagan. Yeah pagan philosophy um uh yeah and he's out there i mean he encourages them all to have a love child like you can tell it's a mix of just cultural difference but also um some senility right yeah some loss of faculty yeah and it clearly has an impact on their place in the community right Um, right she's Meryl's character is basically forced out of her job, you know, she's, and it's implied that it's kind of because of her brother's behavior, you know, that, that she will, she's going to lose her job teaching. And so it's this kind of thing that basically they're, it's the, maybe the last positive summer because it's going to be hard times probably for them after this. It doesn't quite work plot-wise because you never see the... I mean, the brother gets home from Africa, he's in the cottage, and somehow the whole community knows that right. he has heathen tendencies. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. How does everybody know? Yeah. So you... I think you said when we talked about this in our last episode that you made a point out of seeing this movie in the late 90s when it came out. Is that correct? Did you go see it in the theater? I did. For whatever reason, I was just so excited for this movie. I was a junior in high school. I, uh, they showed it at, I was in Monterey, California, and they had this really like old, beautiful theater where they showed independent films. I remember I saw Dancing at Lunasa there and the full Monty. <laughs> that's, a, that's a unique <laughs> double bill. I remember seeing there. And I, um, I, I don't, I haven't watched it since. I fell in love with the music and I bought the soundtrack and I know the music backwards and forwards. I've listened to it to study through four degrees. Wow. <laughs> through the rest of high school and my BA, my JD, my MFA, my LLM, Dancing on Lunasa has been a part of getting me through all of it. So I love the music. But I couldn't, I, I remember thinking, it was really sad, just like heartbreakingly sad. And um, that was it. So I was really watching it with fresh eyes because I remembered Rose, the sister Rose. Mm-hmm. And that was really it. I, I didn't remember anything else about the movie. Um, so I got to I got to watch it as if I had never seen it, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. How does it hold yeah. up these many years later? It's fascinating. It was not nearly as sad as, like, I was a high school student, and I thought it was devastating. Like, that's my memory of it, that it was just devastating. And that, and I remember having a sense of doom watching the whole film. And now that I am, I'm turning 40, y'all. <laughs> I'm turning 40 this month. Um, and I watch it now, and I did not have that sense of doom it just felt like a snapshot of life, which is kind of sad. <laughs> I I am a hundred percent with you. I'm glad you said that because uh, not to interrupt your train of thought, but that, yeah, no, go. The 
it's funny because, as you know, I always read a one-star review. And so I actually usually will wait until after the movie to look those up. But for, for whatever reason, I was kind of like watching it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do a little bit of research as I am watching it. And so I did the one-star review thing. And there's only two one-star reviews. But they both were like, this is the saddest, most depressing movie. And I re- was kind of bracing myself for that. And of course, you know, having done the play, I remembered it a certain way as well. It's not upbeat. But I mostly remember like the joyful dancing from the stage production too, like that yes. part of it, which is also in the film. I'm with you. This was not super sad. <laughs> like, I mean, no. it's it's not going to crush you by any means. I also have to say, it's an hour and a half movie. I re- I remember thinking, oh, this is a long one. And again, I don't know if the play is longer or what. But I, re- I remember thinking when I put it in, like, okay, got to dedicate some time to this. Not only is it an hour and a half, but it moves really fast. Like, it is very watchable. Yeah. And I think I captured better this time the sense of, uh, listen, this is very clearly a better stage play than it is a film. Because when you're trapped in a single location, which you are on stage, you the themes of, of movement and dancing and music as an outlet and, and a source of joy during difficult times, I mean, it's very clear to me that the stage play could really lean into those themes and be a really rich theatrical experience. I don't get that from the film that much um, because I think it's just difficult to translate. Mm -hmm. But I picked up more of that now than I recall doing that at the time. Um, and, and that was the theme that, uh, that I kind of latched on to and, and, and stayed with me because you know, now that I'm basically the age of these sisters, <laughs> I, I, I could identify. You know, you I do use music and and dancing as as a source of joy in difficult times, and it does pull community together. And it is it is a, it is an anchor that you can always go back to, um, and so that was much more powerful for me this time for sure. Yeah. Yeah. This movie, I, you know, as much as I, you know, will say that it was very watchable. It was, you know, I also, it's kind of a middle of the road movie in a lot of ways. It's not going to change your life. It's, uh, it's very good. She's very good in it. Um, it, you can see why this is maybe not thought of in the top 20, you know, movies that she's ever been in. Like, you know, nobody, I, I would be surprised and maybe somebody will email us and tell us otherwise, but like you ask a hundred people what their top 10 favorite Meryl Streep movies is. I'd be surprised if Dancing at Luna's was on that list from anybody who wasn't like in the, in the play at some point, you know, like some, you know, yeah. somebody might have a kind of attachment to it for, for other reasons. But, um, but at the same time, and it's also, I, I'm curious what drew her to this movie. This feels like a very Irish, like UK production. You know, I'm sure it was filmed in Ireland. Uh, you know, like Michael Gambon is in it, AKA Dumbledore. But, you know, Catherine McCormick is kind of known, but like, this is really like, you know, this is not a movie that like US audiences would really know, especially in 1998 before Harry Potter, would know really any of these other people in this movie would would yeah. be 
this feels like a very overseas I, I i wonder what brought her to this film i'm guessing it was a combination of brian friel the 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 play as a foundation mm-hmm. i'm sure i wouldn't be surprised if she saw because it won the tony for best play in right. 92 i think i wouldn't be surprised if she saw the production that and a chance to film in ireland i'm sure right right um and it does come at an interesting point in her career because this is 1998 wait i just had this here okay so the movie's right before this so she did bridges of madison county in 95 which is a high point so i think we both agree um, after that, in 96, she does Before and After in Marvin's Room. Now, Before and After is one of the lowest-ranked movies that we've done so far. We haven't done Marvin's Room, but Marvin's Room was not financially successful. I actually think that's pretty good as far as a movie goes, yeah. but it's it, it didn't make any money. Uh, she did that TV movie, First Do No Harm, which we also didn't kind of put high on our lists. Then this one, then after this, One True Thing and Music of the Heart, which she gets Oscar nominations for both, but they also lost some significant money on both. And then it takes a couple of years off and comes back and kind of resets with adaptation and the hours, and she's kind of into that third act, basically. But I mean, like, you know, she was just a couple years removed from a major success in the Bridges of Madison County, but also in kind of a funky point in her career where, you know, everybody reveres her for sure but those incredible you know high points of the hours and adaptation and devil wears prada and julie and julia have not come along yet and mamma mia and all of those you know like she's yeah it's a very interesting point in her career here so that's probably part of it too is it's a great role at a time when you know she's you know uh, just playing good roles and hoping for the best yeah uh, the movie's interesting because I feel like uh, there's something in the adaptation to screenplay. There are missed connections. Like, not not all the dots are connecting in terms of character development and how the characters influence one another. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up being a little, like, not that the movie itself is a one-note, Johnny. The characters are. Right. They don't not a single one of them has any sort of character development or arc really, except maybe Rose. Right. Uh, Agnes a little bit in that she, you know, over the course of the film decide finally makes the decision to leave, but it's not entirely clear. It's not entirely clear why she's going. It's clear. It's clear circumstantially why she, why she's going. They don't have any money. They don't know how they're going to support themselves as a family because this factory is opening and and Kate, who's the main breadwinner, has lost her job as a teacher. But um, I think what's actually happened is that they're finally pushed their limit with tension with Kate, the oldest sister, um, that it's just time to go. But that that doesn't entirely read to me. Sure. Um, there, there just seems, there just seem to be holes, emotional holes in, in the story, which is why it's like, eh, it's fine. You don't really know why any of them do the things they do and they're just sort of there Yeah. and it's really sad in the end. I mean, it is so sad to find out what happened to those two sisters, 
But you find that you find out what happened to them, and you're like, "Why did you leave? It wasn't that bad." Right. <laughs> I think that's the problem with the film. It's like, well, your circumstances weren't that bad. Why did you choose to go starve on the streets of London? Unless the argument is that they could see how things were about to go, you know, like could see the writing on the yeah. wall. Yeah, you can fill in the gaps, right? Yeah. I don't feel like the film fills them in for me, though. Sure, that's fair. It's a very interesting role for her, too, because it's not a very, it's not a super likable. Like, she's kind of the, she's not a Debbie Downer entirely. Like, she has her moments of levity. But, like, if I were, if I were playing one of these roles, that wouldn't be the one I would want to play, I don't think. No. And she's Meryl Streep. Like, she could play any of these she wanted to play. You know what I mean? Like, what what is it yeah. about this role? I don't know. I mean, I couldn't identify with her at all. I, I mean, I, I could I could certainly understand where the character was coming from, but I didn't have um, I, I didn't have any compassion yeah. for the for the character, and I, I don't know if that's in the writing and the performance. But reading it on paper, I'm curious too. Like, I don't know. It just feels like there should have been more layers there. <laughs> See, and to me, the performance makes sense because I feel like that's the character in the productions that I've seen as well. You know what I mean? Like that, that is, it makes sense to me. Like I said, as a performance, it's a solid performance in that role. Yeah. The layers in the writing. Right. It's there in the adaptation. It's just like, I don't know, choosing to play basically a fuddy duddy when you're Meryl Streep. Although maybe that's the thing is like, she hasn't really done that before. Or, I mean, at that point, I don't know if she had. I, you could argue that Big Little Lies, that character was kind of a fuddy-duddy, but also there were a lot more layers in that one, too. Um, yeah. Uh, outside of that, I'm not sure she's ever done the kind of, like, you know, really kind of sour pussy, you know, kind of no no fun, you know, no-nonsense kind of performance. I think those words we're using to describe the character, though, so show some weakness in 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 the in the writing, mm. because because I imagine when you look, I haven't seen the play and I, I haven't read it, but I'm guessing I'm, I'm guessing if you can see the play on stage, um, Kate ends up being the character who you know as the oldest sister and the breadwinner, the one who is trying against all odds. To, to hold the family together, to hold these sisters together, to keep the threads tied together. And um, that, to me, as an actor, would be very compelling. Right. It just didn't translate on film. <laughs> um, and so what ends up happening is she just ends up being sort of this unlikable, tight-ass right. character and all you just kind of want to be like, can you please just loosen up for a second and right. like let people dance around your house? Like, what is the problem? Right. And, that's, <laughs> and that shouldn't be the case. <laughs> and that's also what you said is the solution. Give her one scene where she and the little boy get to bond. Give her one yeah. scene where she and she and one of the sisters get to like have some fun, you know, there's exactly. Or you get some backstory for her. Right anything to allow you to tap in i don't think you get any right like you don't you know we each take our roles in our family for a very specific reason and an oldest sibling especially with that many sisters you can see how um 
you know, the brother who's gone off to Africa to be a priest, who's emulated in the community for being a priest, but is not there to hold things together. Like you can, as a, you know, as an audience member, I have to do the work to put all that together. The movie is not allowing me enough insight into the character and her backstory to, to deliver that to me directly. Right. I have to work for it. Yeah. 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 I'm with you. Well, and I mean, we, I think we kind of answered some of our own questions to tell you the truth about like (laughs) some of, some of the character motivations. Like you understand if you really think about it that like, yeah, it'd be great if we could have a scene of her doing that. But like the circumstances being what they were and the stress of that particular moment as, as you know, she was the one who would kind of see everything coming she like yeah you see why she's a funny daddy you see why she is kind of uptight and no fun because like she knows things are you know on the precipice right now yeah yeah the one time we get to see her almost go there is they talk about going to this town like dance thing and you see her get like her character not meryl of course the character of kate get like momentarily excited and kind of considerate but then she kind of shuts yeah. it down you know and it's yeah. like oh we don't do that we we don't dance you know things i can't remember exactly what she says but she kind of shuts it down and i don't know it would be nice to see that i think yeah you know what i take it back i've been i've been i've been blaming the writing but i think it's actually the direction and editing because because it's all there. I mean, we're talking about it, which means we're aware of it. Right. <laughs> like, we know the character motivations, and you can see the dynamics, and there were brilliant actors involved. I, I think it's a pacing thing. Yeah. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it to the point where I think I almost want to watch it again to figure out why it's not working. Yeah. And parts of it do work. I mean, I think overall as a film, it's a solidly yeah. made film. It's not that it's a failure. It's just, like, it has... It has slightly unfulfilled potential, all things considered. Yeah. That moment where they turn on the radio, though, and she finally does break loose and they all go outside and dance. Yeah. I was, like, crying. Well, see, that's, I mean, like, you know, we get to the what's, oh, your, yeah. what's your favorite Meryl scene in this movie. Of course it's that. Of course it's that. Yeah. You know, um, I could be wrong. And if so, I almost don't want to say this because this would actually make for a really funny gimmick in a show. But I think this is one of the things in the stage play is that the radio like is broken and like turns on and off by itself intermittently. And they like whenever it does, they kind of like just start dancing, which is a great concept. I mean, like there's, you know, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I oh, think good. that existed in the show where it was like it was more of a surprise when it would come on and, and turn off. But maybe I'm making that up. I might be remembering that wrong. But if so, don't steal that, because if if that's not true, I want to use that for something. <laughs> that's good. I would actually really love to see this filmed like American Sun, where it's the play, mm-hmm. but but you know, filmed. Right. And, and I don't mean like, oh, a live stage, like a live capture. A, a, a true film, like American Sun was done, but nothing's altered from the script. Right, right. Um, I think I'd like to see that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't mean to assume that that would be your favorite Meryl scene in this film. Do you have any other scenes? Oh, no, that, it was. Yeah. <laughs> it was for me, too. There's also, this is like, uh, 
this is another one of those. There are a couple times when I've said something on the podcast where I was like, I almost shouldn't say this, but I was looking to see like, did she do any interviews around this time that are up on, um, on YouTube yeah. or anything? And there's really not. And the only thing that really exists besides like people putting up the trailer or like a favorite scene or something is this really choppy footage that somebody put up of backstage or, or like, you know, behind the scenes filming. It's like, you know, it says behind the scenes, but it's not professionally done. It's not like from a DVD or something. It's just like somebody who's filming while they're filming on like a, you know, 1998 camcorder or something. It's super choppy. But it's interesting because it shows all of the sisters interacting and all of the um, actors, actresses are talking to each other. And Meryl kind of seems like the outsider in the group. Like she's, they're not really talking to her. Well, that would be consistent with the way she works. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And her, like, half-method. Right. <laughs> half-method approach, yeah. And, it, you know, like, she certainly was not being rude. Like, she was laughing and kind of, like, smiling at people. She was not being rude by any stretch. But it was clear that, like, they would interact with each other. And it was almost like, it was funny seeing her in that position. Because it was like, you know that's Meryl Streep next to you, right? Like, how do you not, like... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and they're basically right. ignoring her. And again, this is four minutes of footage and they filmed for, yeah. I'm sure, you know, I don't want to take anything out of context. I'm just saying this is this one thing that exists. Also on a sidebar, as long as we're talking, cause I almost sent this to you, Meryl, and um, I encourage anybody to, to look this up. This is, this is a Meryl related, but a sidebar cause it's not about dancing at Lunasa. Um, when you and I were in high school or so, maybe even a late middle school, do you remember Rosie O'Donnell had a talk show, the Rosie O'Donnell show? Oh, yeah. Which was oh, yeah, yeah. amazing. She was, that show is partially responsible for, for Broadway's, like, yep. re-emergent. Yep, yeah. absolutely. So Rosie has been putting up on her own YouTube channel the interviews that she did from that show. She, I guess, must own the footage or they're just allowing her to do this so you know like anybody who was ever on that show basically she has kind of put up separate interviews which i think is really cool i wish they would do that with all the shows um meryl was on that show and it from the context there isn't like any real context to it it just like starts with the interview so there's no like preamble or anything but it sounds like she was a surprise guest or something so she wasn't there promoting anything it wasn't like she was plugging a movie that she was in and um, what was interesting, and the reason I almost sent it to you, was they started talking about musical theater, and then they started talking about the Music Man, which I guess Meryl did when she was in high school or something. And, you know, Rosie always tried to get people to sing on that show because she loved singing show tunes. And yeah. her her piano player could is one of those guys who could just, like, hear what you were doing and, like, jump in and, like, knew a key you were in and whatever. And uh, so Rosie, like, tried to get her to sing and, like, let's do 76 trombones. Do you know that one? And then said to Meryl, well, what was your song? And she said, well, good night, my someone. And Rosie says, well, just sing that, you know, expecting her, I'm sure, to sing, like, a line or two. And she basically sings the entire song, and it's gorgeous. It's so oh, pretty. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> and it's just, like, it's more, like, classical singing, yeah. you know? It's, it's very... Like do in films. Right. She's always exactly. Felt. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very kind of different way of hearing her sing. And she seems nervous. I mean, it's front of in front of a studio audience and it, you know, was she was kind of put on the spot in a loving, you know, nudge. And um, I don't know. It's just really interesting. So look that up, anybody who's curious to see that, because it's really cool. 
that's exciting. Yeah. That's such a beautiful song too. Yeah. And it's, it's a good rabbit hole because, you know, you'll start seeing, oh, she did interviews with this person and that person and this person. And you'll start like watching a lot of Rosie interviews from 1997. <laughs> I love it. Her Christmas albums from that time. She's got two. Oh, oh I didn't know she so... did that. Yeah. She released two Christmas albums in the heyday of her talk show and they are. <laughs> huh. Well, that talk show was, I mean. I think anybody who is like us, like we wanted to be her, you know, we wanted to have that show that, you know, who wouldn't, she was just amazing. She was so good at that. And she was having so much fun. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So good time. Um, anything else you want to say about dancing at Lunasa? The, the composer did all the music for Riverdance. Oh. Bill Whelan. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Which makes sense when you hear the song that they end up dancing to. You're yeah. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> it's very river dancing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm looking real fast to see where things stand on. Okay, this is currently, I guess, at a 64% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is, you know, a little bit better than average. Actually, that feels about average for Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it's a 6.3 on IMDb. So um, let's see. That makes sense. I think that's an accurate. Yeah. I think so, too. I mean, that definitely on the IMDb thing, there's a lot more above it than below it. So at 6.3, this would tie it with Hope Springs, which we've not yet done, and The Laundromat. It's above things like Lion for Lambs, Prime, Before and After, Heartburn, Still of the Night, Let Them All Talk, which kind of, Let Them All Talk should be a lot higher than that, but whatever. Um, and it's below basically everything you would expect it to be below. It's, it's about right in terms of the, you know, overall ranking it's just you know it could be skewed higher in some ways too um i couldn't really find budget information for this one how much you know they spent on it but i would imagine probably not a ton I it made think. it made something like two two million plus at the box office okay. right yeah i think it so. wasn't a lot yeah um all right so like i said there are two one star reviews uh, they basically have the both, both of them have the same uh, thesis. Uh, the title of the first one is It Couldn't Be More Depressing. So I won't read that one, but I'll, I'll read this one because it was slightly more interesting and had a funny last line that I thought you would get a kick out of. This is written by Bjork slash Bjork in 2000. Title is The Movie is Fake, Profound, and Fake Artistic and Genuinely Phony. Here we go. Oh. I know. Here we go. Buckle up. What a dreary movie, but a safe one to say you loved because it has Irish or Scottish scenery. Yes, that's good. And because it has Meryl Streep in it, phony badge of authenticity. She is so pure. If this movie I know, if this movie were authentic, it wouldn't have needed the famous American actress in it to bring in the viewers. And its previews <laughs> and its previews would have included a hint of the other dreary 90% of the story instead of the very few moments of life it had. Streep is no stranger to phony films. Look at the deer hunter. That's the line that's like, wait a what? second. <laughs> <laughs> wait, what makes a movie authentic? I, and what makes a movie phony? Do good, we know? We don't know. I mean, that's I the mean, entire review, so I don't know. If we're getting technical, every movie is phony because everybody's playing pretend. Right. <laughs> Right. These are actors and actresses playing parts that are not them, you know? Yeah. It's like, you know, the writer is Irish, and this is semi-autograph. 
autobiographical. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It the the line about stranger, you know, street being no stranger to phony films. Look at the Deer Hunter. That's a big. Wait a second. <laughs> what about the Deer Hunter? Is I mean, Deer Hunter is is the only Merrill movie, as far as I'm concerned, that I kind of never want to watch again. But it's not because I think it's a bad movie. It's because it's like a little too real, you know. <laughs> Totally. Oh, you know what? I'm going to circle back real quick. My favorite scene in the whole movie actually has none of the sisters in it. Okay. I mean, what? It's the one where Michael Gambon and Reese Eifen, Michael Gambon goes to say goodbye to, 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 to Reese Eifen. He's about to go fight Franco. And he comes out in his military regalia, this giant feathered hat. And, you know, he's, he's definitely going senile. He's not all there. And he, he engages in this ritual where they turn around two times and then circle each other and switch hats. And and when Michael, when Reese Eifen offers his arm to Michael Gambon to walk him back into the house, it's just this really sweet, sweet, tender moment. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. That. Loved it. Yeah. Uh, I don't imagine you have this ranked. No, because I haven't looked at my rankings in months, and I haven't ranked, like, the last six movies we've watched, and I'm a failure as a co-host. Well, here's here's my hope, actually, because next episode, as you know, we talked about this, is our 50th movie. So I, I will have it ranked. That's, that's my thought, is I will send you... I will do my job. I will send you what I have as your current rankings and you just fill in the gaps and we'll be good awesome um done i have it ranked 30th currently in performances i have it underneath like the prom prime and a prairie home companion are above this it's just above ironweed the deer hunter which now feels really wrong <laughs> mama mia oh i think this is too high never mind i think i have ironweed too high now that i'm looking at this um I, I need to redo this. I am changing my mind. But I'm going to maybe put it in between Defending Your Life and Heartburn or something. So somewhere in the mid-30s. I'll figure it out. Um, as far as movies, I have it right now in 32. Again, kind of a Prairie Home Companion, Prime, and Falling in Love are right above this. Ironweed, Ricky and the Flash, Florence Foster Jenkins just below. Actually, Florence Foster Jenkins shouldn't be that low either. I'm ch- I don't know what I'm thinking with some of these. <laughs> We're gonna, you know what? When, when, when this is all said and done, what did we start in 2017? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, something wow. like that. We need to go up. You know what? When this is all said and done, we'll just start over. Yeah, <laughs> and it'll be completely <laughs> different, I'm sure. But I mean, like looking at this list. Florence Foster Jenkins should not be 34 out of 49. That's that's a good movie, you know? It is pretty good, and her performance in it is pretty good. But you know what? That was one of the like really early ones we watched, True. right? Yeah. I think it's easy as time goes on for these performances to fade. Like, right. I couldn't tell you a thing about Iron Weed, except I I think I repeated the word bleak several times <laughs> in the episode. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> Uh, and I, I, yeah, I remember she's an alcoholic. That's it. That's right. all I got. Right. Um, all right. Shall we move on to our other segments? Yes. Except I'm going to be super unsuccessful at those two. Okay. So in that case, <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to say, let's start with six degrees because I need to do something quick while we're doing this. Um, so okay. our person for six degrees was Lashana Lynch. You picked her because you had just seen her in the new James Bond movie, right? No Time to Die? Yes. Um, did you, do you have any connections that come to mind? 
No, although there has to be so many because it's no time to die and every British actor in the world is in that, like Ray Fiennes. Surely Ray Fiennes has done a movie with Meryl Streep, has he? Not that I can think of. Daniel Craig? Not that I can no. think of. I, I have two from that movie. In fact, okay. let's do this. How about I give you the Rory name? Kinnear? Rory Kinnear? Has he done a movie with Meryl Streep? <laughs> I don't think so. Let me give you the names and see if you can connect them. Okay. First one is low-hanging fruit. Actually, they're kind of both doable. Ben Wishaw. Yeah. Ben Wishaw has been in a movie with Meryl Streep. Yep. Recently. Uh, within the last... Uh, oh, Mary Poppins. Yes. Aw, <laughs> oh, yay. And the other one is Jeffrey Wright, who's been in, I think, three or four different movies with Meryl. Oh, God. I can't even see Jeffrey Wright's face. Oh, Jeffrey Wright. Oh, he's brilliant. Oh, what has he been in? I mean, I love him in Westworld. But I can't think of a Meryl movie he's been in. He's been in uh, The Laundromat he was in, which I know was not one of your favorite ones. He was in Angels in, Amer- Angels in America, and he was in Manchurian not- Candidate. Oh, yeah, you haven't seen that one. Yeah. We watched Manchurian Candidate, didn't we? Yeah, we, did. we definitely did. Yeah. He's yeah, kind of... Then- it's like an early cameo thing. They basically, like, the director was like, it's one day of work, you're in a movie with Meryl Streep and Denzel Washington, and he was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do that. Yeah, he's like, sure, of course I'll do that. Yeah, I would not have gotten him at all. Because I don't remember either the laundromat or Manchurian Candidate. That's where we are these days, folks. I cannot remember the movies I watched. That's all right. That's the way it goes. Um, the other connection that I made with her was I knew she was in the Captain Marvel movie. Um, yeah. And so I figured there was something there. The only one, I, I'm guessing there's more. And there's probably more in, in No Time to Die as well. The only connection with Captain Marvel I could make was Annette Benning, uh, who had a small part in Postcards from the Edge. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a really good one. I would cool. like to see Meryl and Annette Benning together, like, now do something now oh that would be really nice yeah yeah i would like that anything i assume we covered that one anything else that you wanted to say about the uh shauna lynch okay um our next six degrees person is jeffrey rush uh so feel free to play along with us meryl street podcast at gmail.com you can also write and just say hi we love getting those emails um Cool. All right. Movies we wish Meryl was in. Do you have one? Um, not a movie, but I wish she was in the Gilded Age because, ah. you know, her other cohorts are. That's a great um, one. I, I certainly wouldn't want her to overshadow her very lovely, brilliant daughter, but it would be very cool. <laughs> I bet that's the reason she's not been in it. Don't you think? Yeah. It actually would have been great. Listen, Christine, Ber- we say this every time. I'm just going to go ahead and, and make it official rule. Whenever we say we wish Meryl Streep was in something, <laughs> we in no way, shape, or form degrading or wishing to replace the person who's playing the part who's brilliant with Christine Baranski's character. Right. She would be very good in that. Yeah. It's, a, it's an homage and a trivia because we wouldn't think of it unless the original person was great and made it a great role. Yeah. You know, it's always the exactly. thing. Exactly. Um, I'm going to go with a really outside the box one, actually, and I'm going to I'm going to give a reason for it, which is that I recently finished Frank Langella's uh, book on audio. Uh, I think oh, it's yeah. I think it's called Dropped Names. Are you familiar with this book? I know it exists. I haven't read it. So it's funny because Frank Langella, who I 
have always loved as an actor, but know nothing about essentially. Um, does oh, not he's out there. Oh, see, he did not strike me as the type who is out there, but yes, he's out there. So <laughs> he, this book, it's called Dropped Names, and it's like a, I'm going to tell some stories about, I mean, it is very gossipy. So the the kind of uh, thing about it is that he, he devotes a chapter to 60, 70 different people. I mean, you wouldn't believe the number of people this guy met, had, like, I mean, everybody back then. He dated Elizabeth Taylor. He dated, um, yeah. So, I mean, like, the this book starts with John F. Kennedy. You know what I mean? Like, that's where it yeah. starts. And it's just like every other person, you're like, oh my God, how could this person know all of these people? He's just one of those guys who just knew everybody. Does he talk about Dracula on Broadway? A little bit. He's, like, very proud of that commercial, the Broadway commercial he did with, with Dracula. And, and granted, it was a huge, like, it, it changed advertising for Broadway for sure. He's very proud about it. It definitely, it's definitely a story in the book. So the the conceit of this is that it's a memoir that's very gossipy, but he only does stories and chapters on people who are no longer living. He doesn't talk about people who are still alive. Which Right, which is why part of it is like, you know, he does these great, like, to me, the most touching ones were like Alan Bates and um, you know there were some really really good ones but he also is not afraid to like talk some shit like Rex Harrison and like you know I mean he talks some smack about people that he didn't like to Rex um, Harrison was supposedly not very nice well yeah the, so I mean he really it's really a fascinating book and if you are especially interested in like English actors of a certain age this, oh, definitely. this book is for you um, I, I don't want to. I'm not interrupting or getting you off subject, but I just finished um, uh, Haley Mills. Oh yeah, memoir. nice. How was that? Yeah, I, I saw that. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a little uneven, but it's really she. You know, because her dad was John Mills, she also just has so many, and she's very lovely about everyone. She doesn't have a bad thing to say about anybody, but she's got so many stories about you know Rex Harrison and Lawrence Olivier and Vivian Lee and that whole sort of English actor crowd and I that's, I love it so tell, tell me more about Frank well so the one I was gonna say it, I was thinking about Jill Clayburgh because she's one of the categories and I actually didn't know that Jill Clayburgh had died um, I missed that mm-hmm. when she died so I was thinking about Jill Clayburgh because I you know heard that chapter not long ago and I'm gonna go with an unmarried woman which is one of Jill Clayburgh's greatest roles i think as an unmarried woman that's my choice nice i like it cool all right cool i think we're i think we're wrapped for this one so we had previously decided that for our next and 50th film review that we're going to do the iron lady since it won meryl her third oscar you still cool with that yes most definitely all right so our next episode should be the iron lady unless something comes up i also wanted to say this, as I was looking, you know, it's March. We haven't heard that Meryl is, you know, as far as we know, she's not in production on anything, which means that this might be the first year since, I think, 2010 that we don't get a Meryl Streep movie this year. Because Don't Look Up was last year. That was 2021. It came out in December. Tragedy. What? Meryl, don't you be slowing down on us. Well, don't, I mean, 
taking a break? Who do you think you are, Meryl? Right? You need to keep delivering How to your people. dare you decide that you have the right to stop for a moment <laughs> what you're doing. Let's see. Upcoming projects. Places, please. But that hasn't... Lillian I mean, Hall in development. Extrapolations. And that that's like a mini-series thing that may gotcha. come out this year, but I don't think that's really going to be... That's like every, you know, each of the stars gets their own episode kind of thing. Uh-huh. I don't think it's like a real... You know what I mean by real project? It's not... It's a little I, different. Yeah, I gotcha. Meryl. Meryl, Meryl. I know. It's kind of weird, right? I mean, like, she's been working so consistently and so steadily. I don't I don't begrudge her her taking a break, but, you know, come back. Let's... No, right? We need you. Like, take break and then come back to us. Yeah. <laughs> Stronger and prouder. Um, but yeah, that we should be, I was going to say, the reason I thought of that was I, I started to say, we'll be back with Iron Lady unless, you know, she puts out a new movie and we get to that first. But I think we're safe this time. Yeah. <laughs> Even if we take a longer break uh, again this time, we're probably safe for a while. I know. We're going to try not to. I'm going to try not to have any... <laughs> any other like Greek Odyssey type events in yeah. life <laughs> for many reasons <laughs> for many reasons but um, yeah and then maybe we'll after that I'm thinking maybe we'll do another tribute we had said we were going to do a Jessica Lang tribute a long time ago and we never did so we should do that at some point oh that would be great that so, would be great there was somebody else I thought of who would be great to tribute love it let's think about that um, this reminds me randomly. One of the things I meant to say about Dancing at Lunasa um, was in the IMDb trivia, which is you know who knows how reliable, possibly said the two of the original choices to star in it were Frances McDormand and Kate Winslet, which I could see both of them in that movie. You know. Oh yeah. I could, totally. Frances McDormand would have been a really good Kate, don't you think? Like that oh, serious, yeah. yeah. I, I almost would prefer Frances McDormand in that role and then slot Meryl over to, um, I don't know. I I think I think Frances, Mc, it would have been a little bit on the head. Yeah, she could have been Christina, maybe. I think Christina is almost the most interesting other role, but I don't know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love Rose. And, yeah, I don't know which, I mean, I think maybe Kate wins it for Agnes, don't you? Or would she have been yeah. Maggie? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Because she was pretty young back then. That would have been, like, right after Titanic, so. Yeah. <laughs> Although, oh, wow. I do think that the movies that Kate Winslet made, like, right after Titanic, she went, like, right back to small movies right after that. She made a couple movies after that before she kind of went back to I think stuff. Titanic was quite traumatizing for her and Leonardo DiCaprio, and yeah. they went small for a while. Yeah. So, anyway, forgot to mention that earlier, but for whatever it's worth. All right, well, we'll talk to you soon, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, as always, and uh, take care. Bye. That's all.